First off, I want to welcome all of you who are worshiping in the North Auditorium and those of you worshiping around the world online and those of you watching on television. Yeah, God does ask questions. It's an amazing thing. I think we tend to think about the questions that we'd ask God if we could talk to him, but when you open the Bible, you'll discover that throughout Scripture, God is continuously asking questions. And Jesus, who was God in skin on the earth for 33 years, Jesus asked a ton of questions. Sometimes people would come to him with a question, and he would, he would turn it by asking them a question. So last week, we, we, we broached the question, why would, why would a God who knows everything ask us questions? And we came up with three or four answers. I mean, the first answer was, maybe he asks us questions because he just doesn't understand our thinking. We do think differently from God. But I, I emphasize the second answer because I think the reason why God asks questions is because questions, when you think about them, are gentle. Questions give space to another human being or to a human being. Questions give us room for dialogue. If you hold the power in a situation, many of your managers or bosses or owners, if you hold the power in a situation, you know that you can make a declaration, but that tends to shut off the conversation. But if you ask a question, it summons dialogue. It summons discussion. And I think that's one of the things that God wants to do with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. So consequently, he asks us questions, which is why we're looking at five of what I believe are the most important questions that God asks. And I've got questions that God would have for every one of us. Last week, we started with God's first question, where are you, in the book of Genesis. And then there's a third reason why we said that God asks questions, because you see, God tends to ask a question that we don't ask. As we said, sometimes we live in denial, and we walk right past issues that are right in front of us, and we just never ask the, we never ask the quintessential question, because maybe we're just reluctant to deal with what we need to deal with. And so God comes along, and he asks us that question that we've been avoiding all along. And then we saw there's a fourth reason. When God asks us a question, it means we have some time. Ultimately, we're going to stand before God in judgment. God won't ask any questions that day. The Bible says the books will be open. And out of the books will come the judgment for those who have yet to accept Christ. And for those of us who have, the only question is, did we accept him? And we have our name written in the book of life. And once our name is there, that's the end of that, other than the rewards that God will give you for serving him. So I just want to make that point today. For all of us who hear the questions of God, it means we've got a little time, time, time to deal with what we need to deal with. Well, today's question that we have from God is going to be perhaps the most surprising reality about God's personality. I've always said God is the ultimate victim of identity theft. You know, when we hear about God oftentimes in our culture, we have him presented as a stereotype or a caricature. And consequently, I hear people talking about God, but I know enough from the Bible to know they're not talking about the real God. They're talking about someone's conjecture about who God is. And so today, when we, when we hear God ask his question, I think it's going to be surprising, to, at least to maybe very religious people, to find out how God really thinks. But before we get there, let me, let me talk for a few moments about something that's very important to me. Because not only do I pastor New Spring Church, I have the privilege of traveling the country and helping other churches and helping other ministries develop vision for what God is leading them to do. And what I've discovered as I've traveled is a little bit disheartening because perhaps the most underperforming entity in the 20th century is the Church of Jesus Christ in America. I mean, when you think about the explosion in technology and travel and business, at, business learning, I mean, it way outpaced the growth of Christianity in America. Did you know that 80% of American churches have less than 100 people in them? Did you know that only 10% of American churches have more than 350? 
That's kind of astounding when you think of it. And I know that sometimes people say to me, especially in regard to the hugeness of New Spring, people will say to me, well, I like a small church. I want to tell you something, and I mean this with all the love in my heart. And I, and I just hope you hear the love, because if I contradict your feelings on this, I want you to hear the love, but I want you to hear the truth. If you love a small church, you have no idea what Christianity is about. And I'm not sure you've met Jesus yet. Because when you think about what happens to people when they leave this life, and you know that there is heaven and hell out there, how could anybody love a small church? Now, if a church is small because it serves a small community and it, it reaches the level of its impact, that's a wonderful thing. But I'm talking about a church that's purposefully small. See, here's the thing. There's a nasty little secret in American Christianity. And it goes something like this. There's a codependent relationship in too many churches. <laughs> What happens is the people come in and the pastor tells them what they already know and they pay the bills and pay his salary. And so he comes back the next week and puts another layer of lacquer on the already convinced and they pay the bills and they're satisfied and he's satisfied and they tow it up or tee it up next week and come back week in and week out. And after a while, it becomes this small circle of people who gather together to hear what they already hear and the pastor tells them what they already know. And no one ever builds any bridges to people who are spiritually, spiritually unresolved. It's a tragic thing because we've actually, and I don't mean New Spring, I mean it's the very, the very that would be anathema to us, but it's the very antithesis of what the Bible tells us the church is supposed to be about. But what happens in a traditional church is people come in, they begin to feel this, this environment, this, um, this concept of insiderism. We are the insiders. We are the people who know what God says. People on the outside, they don't know what God says. They don't want to know what God says. If they did, they would come in our doors. I mean, that's how the thinking goes. And when you have a culture of insiders in the church, something very toxic begins to happen. If you ask that person in a Bible teaching church about how they know they're going to heaven, they may give you the gospel. But when they start unpacking why they think they're going to heaven, they will give you their spiritual resume that they've developed. They listen to this pastor, could be me. They listen to this pastor, they watch Christian television, they listen to Christian music, they buy Christian books, they've been to this Bible study, they've been to that Bible study, which all those things are fine in their places. But when a person begins to build a resume and somewhat depend on that resume to be okay for their sense of okayness, something gets very toxic about that. But that's what happens in way too many churches. And what happens after that is, as they begin to meet people on the outside, the fact that those outsiders don't have similar resumes, it just confirms what they thought all along, that this is about insiders versus outsiders, and consequently, that is what the church is about. The church is a place where insiders get away from the outsiders and come together, and that's what the church is about. I have a friend who pastors what I would term a legacy church. What I mean by that was that it was a church that had a day in the sun 30 or 40 years ago. In fact, at one point, it was the largest church in its state. But over time, the insiderism got pretty entrenched, and the church began to dwindle in size. And by the time my, my friend took the church, there were only like 400 or so people, 500 people maybe, attending that church. And he was a young pastor, and he and his wife wanted to breathe life into the church and bring a fresh vision of what it would mean to reach out to people in the community. The church was downtown, and the area had changed a whole lot, and most of the people who attended there drove in from the burbs. But the pastor's wife began to notice that the street in front of the church was populated by, by women who were what we would call, I guess, prostitutes. 
And they were walking the streets. And the pastor's wife became greatly burdened for these ladies and began to do things like just bring water to them and just begin to figure out how that they could minister to them and, and bring some gifts. And in time, you know what happens. I mean, it's our world at New Spring. They begin to come into the church. And, and I never will forget the morning, the Monday morning, that my pastor friend called me and he said, Mark, after I preached the message, I opened the altars up and two ladies walked forward and prayed and my wife led them to Christ. And he said they were, they were just walking the streets not long before and now they prayed to receive Jesus Christ. And he was so excited. He was ecstatic. And I was too. And you would be. That's New Spring's DNA. You know what that church did? They fired him. Not because he did anything wrong morally. He was faithful to his wife. Not because he did anything wrong financially or ethically. It was just they did not want him to bring outsiders inside. I'm glad to tell you that story has a happy ending. He pastors a church many times that size in Atlanta, Georgia, and God used me to be someone to recommend. I remember when the head of the pulpit committee called me and said, what do you think about us calling this pastor? I said, let me tell you, if you're a legacy church and all you care about insiders, leave him alone because he's not your guy. If you're a church that wants to build bridges to the spiritually unresolved, call him. He's your guy. And they did call him. I remember that head of the pulpit committee said, that's what our church is missing. I'm glad to tell you that's good, good ending of the story. You know, it's kind of a funny thing, though. Let me tell you one more thing that sort of develops this story for you a little bit more so that you understand this pastor. I met him about five years ago at a pastor's conference that I was part of. And we were in a, ho- we were in a resort hotel, and there's a swimming pool outside. We had meetings in the mornings, meetings in the, after- in the evenings, but in the afternoons, we had free time. And so after he heard about New Spring, this is when he was still pastoring that dead church, he said, Mark, is there any way I can meet you this afternoon? He said, can we meet down by the pool? So when we met down by the pool, he had, he had his swim trunks on, but he had a shirt over that. And he told me, he said, I'm a little embarrassed because he said, I've got tattoos all over me. And I thought, well, that's totally cool. It's not a problem for me, but I guess he was worried about how some of the other pastors would react to that. And he started telling me a story. See, when I met him that morning, if you're an accountant, please don't take any umbrage at this. I thought he was kind of an accountant. I mean, he sort of had that button-down personality with the glasses on and everything. And so I just figured, oh, here's a kid who grew up in Sunday school, went to church, you know, sort of the analytical type. God called him to seminary, and he became a pastor. Boy, would I have had that wrong. He was a drug dealer. I mean, not then, but I mean before. (laughs) He's a drug dealer. And if I remember right, he's a three-time loser. And he told me, he said, Mark, I was standing before the judge, and she was about to sentence me to 20 years. And she said she was in the process of sentencing me to 20 years. She laid out the 20 years, and she stopped right in the middle of a sentence and just paused for a minute. And she said, I have no idea why I'm doing this, but I am going to give you one more chance. And she said, if you sneeze in this town, if you get a parking ticket, you're going into the prison for 20 years. He said, I knew with the people I hung with, there was no way I could stay out of prison. So he moved to another town, wound up managing a fitness center. While he was managing the fitness center, a girl came in and invited him to church. He said, I've never gone to church in my life. I don't even own a Bible. She said, well, I want you to come to my church. He came to a church very much like New Spring. He accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, began to grow in his faith, committed his life to gospel ministry, and that's how he wound up pastoring. But do you understand now why, when he was in that legacy church, he could not let women walk the street and sell their bodies without reaching out to them and showing them the love of God, even though it cost him his job? Because, see, here's the thing. It wasn't long before he was in that situation, and he didn't forget what it felt like to be an outsider. The problem in American churches is it's filled with insiders who've forgotten what it's like to be on the outside. And they have a sense of demonic superiority 
over the people that are exactly where they used to be. That's what's going on. So with that uh, very quiet introduction, <laughs> let's tackle Jesus' question. By the way, before we do, just in case somebody can say here, we'll say, Mark, I think the church is all about people on the inside. After all, and you wouldn't be a new springer if you felt this way, but you may be visiting or watching online or television. You say, Mark, I think the church is for people who are already, already believers, and evangelism is something that takes place outside our door. Well, look at the last hundred years, as Dr. Phil says, how's that working for us? Let me tell you what Jesus said the church is about. We call this the Great Commission, or you could call this the purpose statement of the church. Jesus said, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I'm with you even to the end of the age, which means it's still in effect in 2016. Listen, here's the thing. Church was never meant to be about the people on the inside. See, here's the thing. Before you become a new springer, you want to think about this because new springers are about people who are not here yet. That's what we exist for. The church does not exist for us. We exist for people who are not here yet. Have you ever gone into an emergency room? Man, I have hundreds of times. I want you to think about an emergency room for a moment. Is an emergency room, is the environment of the emergency room, is it created for the people who work in the hospital or is it created for the people who are fighting for their lives? Listen. When you go into an emergency room, there are not fireplaces and beds for the people who work there. You know, there's not all kinds of the home theater systems for the people who work in the, in the emergency room. That place is built for people, like I said, who have been brought in by ambulance or who walked in with some kind of major issue in their life. And remember this, the church, and this is one of the oldest statements, but it's still true. God never intended for his church to be a rest home for saints. He meant it to be a hospital for sinners. And consequently, all our environments are about people who are not here yet. That is New Spring Church. Now, with that in mind, I want to take you to the question. I want to go back to the Old Testament book of Jonah, one of my favorites. I've actually done a couple of series here on Jonah. If you want to find these in the bookstore, order them. I did a series called um, Running in 2007. I think I did a series called Jonah about three or three years ago. Only four chapters. And it's kind of cool because in chapter one, you have Jonah running away from God. In chapter two, you have Jonah in the belly of the sea animal. And then in chapter three, you have Jonah running with God, doing God's work. And in chapter four, you got Jonah smarter than God. Isn't it dangerous when we get smarter than God? That's what we're going to focus on today. But before we get to chapter 4, let me just give you a little background in the history of Jonah. Jonah wasn't just a God follower. He was what we would call a pastor today. He was a preacher. And we're in about the 9th century B.C. It's before Israel went into captivity. Ultimately, they'll go. But right now, they're enjoying a good season. See, Israel had lost some land from some people group that had invaded them. And so God gave Jonah the prophecy that he was going to give it back. It was great news. Jonah had the privilege of telling people, oh, something wonderful is going to happen. And it did happen. And because it happened, Jonah, by the way, his name means dove. I guess he's kind of a peaceful kind of guy, which is ultimately we'll understand why, God's, why God gave him the assignment he's going to give him. Jonah's the most popular preacher in Israel. I mean, he's got photo ops at the palace. I mean, you know, everybody, man, we can't, we, we just love to hear Brother Dove Jonah. I mean, he's just always got a good message, makes us feel good. And so God comes along to this dove, and he says, I got an assignment for you in chapter 1, verse 2. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and announce my judgment against it. 
Oh, every once in a while someone will say, I don't think God judges you. You might want to read the Bible because that's one of God's attributes. He is a judge. And indeed, we're not judges, but notice that God said to Jonah, announce my judgment. See, that's the thing. For us to say something is right is just as much judging as saying as that is wrong. That's because judging is involved in both things. So consequently, our responsibility is to understand and evaluate and to communicate, or not evaluate, but to receive God's judgment. So God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and announce my judgment. And we'll, we understand later on that God had said, I'm going to give you 40 days, and if you don't turn around, I'm going to nuke the place. Because, God said, I've seen how wicked its people are. Well, just so that you'll understand that Nineveh is not some little town, podunk in the middle of nowhere. Nineveh is the greatest city in the world at this time. It's got, according to, according to the Bible, and according to God in chapter 4, 120,000 babies in it. And scholars have looked at that through the years and said, well, if you've got 120,000 babies, it's very likely that Nineveh's got as many as 600,000, maybe a million people. It's the big city in the world. In fact, it was the only metropolis of its size at that time. It took, it, it took three days to go all the way around the city of Nineveh, 60 miles around its circumference. And it was the very epicenter of technology and, and advancement. But it was also, as God said, extraordinarily wicked. Just so that you'll understand Nineveh real quickly and where God sent Jonah, let me just give you, first of all, some historical statements about Nineveh, and then I'll share with you some things the Bible says about it. It'll just take us a few seconds. According to history, um, Nineveh delighted in, new, in inventing new ways to torture people. Every time they could come up with a new way to torture people, it was the big news in Nineveh. They gouged out people's eyes. They skinned them alive and used their skin for furniture. They cut people's body parts off. They worshipped a fish god, so they liked to put a hook in people's lips and pull them around. And outside the city, there was a pile of skulls. That's what history says. Let me give you a few statements from the Bible about Nineveh. It was a city of blood. It was full of lies, never without victims, piles of dead bodies without number. All of this happened over twisted sex and the occult. And then the Bible says someday Nineveh will be destroyed and nobody will grieve. So that's the place that God sent Jonah too. Now, I noticed this. Think about Jonah's personality. God said to Jonah, I want you to go there and tell them, I'm going to nuke the city if they don't turn. Now, if I'm Jonah, I'm saying, God, can, can, we, can we discuss this a little bit? Because, see, if I go there, it's a bad place. God, I tell you what, if you will let me preach that message to my church of insiders, they will love that message. I mean, after all, they're going to be glad that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. So, God, if you will just let me preach that message to my people, I might even turn it into a series, and it might even be the greatest series I've ever had anything to do with in my life. And God said, no. God sort of insisted on his will. Have you noticed that? God said to Jonah, now I want you to go there. And Jonah's not having any of it. So he, he, he goes down to, you know, down to where they sell tickets um, to take sea voyages, and he decides that he wants to take a cruise to Spain and to have a Spanish vacation at that time, where Spain was in the opposite direction as Nineveh. And so he goes down and he buys a ticket. He's saying, it's about time for me to have that Spanish vacation I want. I think I can get a condo over there. So he gets in the ship, and all the mariners are pagans. They don't know anything about Jonah's God. And I love how the Bible talks. The Bible just said God tossed a wind on the ocean, and these guys get in the mother of all storms. 
And they're trying to get somewhere, and they're rowing, and they're calling on their gods, and they're begging for mercy. And they try to find Jonah, and he's asleep down at the bottom of the ship. And they say to Jonah, man, what does it matter with you? You're asleep down here, and we're fighting for our lives. Call on your God. And Jonah said, well, that wouldn't be a good idea. Why not? Because I'm running from my God. Hey, you Christ followers, you ever have a non-believer kind of like shame you for not being what you should be? Isn't it interesting? It always starts with this. I thought you were a Christian. And isn't it amazing? Because these, these pagans who are calling on their false gods, when Jonah said, no, I'm running from my God, these guys were saying, oh, why would you do that? The storm gets worse. They don't want to throw Jonah overboard, but they ask him, what, what should we do? And he said, hey, just kill me. Just throw me overboard. It'll be okay. And they throw him overboard. I always think about Jonah, what he was thinking when he was flying through the air, waiting to land in the water off the side of the ship. I know he was thinking, it can't get any worse than this. <laughs> Never say that, right? Because God had prepared, and, and the word of Hebrew is kind of amazing. We say he was swallowed by a well, but we really don't know. Just God had prepared some sort of sea creature to swallow Jonah. And for three days, Jonah's in the belly of this sea monster, and he's getting his thinking reoriented. You ever have a situation like that where you get your thinking reoriented? And then all that time, God is having the sea monster just sort of shuttle Jonah over to the beach by Nineveh. He's getting a chauffeur ride, and the sea animal upchucks him. And I always think about this. Hope God kept this on video. I can't wait to see how that Jonah looked when he went into Nineveh because he'd had three days in the gastric juices of this animal. I mean, he, he probably he's probably one freaky-looking dude. <laughs> And he gets about into the city of Nineveh, and he starts his sermon. It's like, I'm going to preach this sermon. It'll be the last thing I ever do. They're going to kill me, and my skull is going to be out there with everybody else's. But I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down in a flame of fire. So he goes in and starts preaching, and amazingly, well, let me read it to you. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believe God's message. In fact, this is kind of cute to me. The king of Nineveh, which had to be a really, really wicked man when you think about how the city was, he believed God. He didn't know a whole lot about Israel's God. He just knew a little snippet. But he knew that when the Israelites repented, they put on burlap and they sat in ashes. So he told everybody they need to do that. And then he said, we need to put burlap on the animals. Well, there's nothing like that in the Bible, but the guy's just doing, he's following the light he's got. Which if you don't know God yet, that's what you should do. Just follow the light you've got. That's kind of weird, putting burlap on the animals, but hey, he knew he was in trouble. You know, when you know you're in trouble, it's amazing, isn't it? Well, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he threatened. Well, if I'm Jonah, hey, you know, you know how New Spring thinks? We think, oh, we're going to start a New Spring Nineveh campus. And God said, there's 120,000 babies there. How about Kids World, Baby Bay? I mean, we would, we would be so excited. Shouldn't Jonah have been happy? I mean, he's a preacher, and God has just used him, perhaps in the greatest, what we used to call revival in the history of the world. But no, as I used to say on Saturday Night Live, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah. Well, who was he mad at? Was he mad at the Ninevites? No, read on. So he complained to the Lord. Didn't I say this before I left home that you would do this, Lord? No, he didn't, really. He said, that's why I ran away to Tarshish. That's a lie. He ran away because he was scared. But you know when people are self-righteous, strange, isn't it, how they sort of 
manipulate the truth. Now look at why he's mad at God. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. How many people are here are going to raise your hand? And You don't have to, but how many would raise your hand and say, I'm so thankful that God is eager not to destroy people. But it's weird, as I said a few moments ago, because people on the inside can forget about what it was like to be on the outside, and they get this feeling of superiority, and sometimes it's like God judge those people who don't think like we think. Telling you, if I were God, I would have just nuked Jonah on the spot, because I would say, man, weren't you drowning in the ocean a few days ago? I mean, how quick you forget. But God's not like me. He's very gentle, and he's very patient. You got to see this. this is in chapter four. I won't read it, but Jonah's like really mad because he's like saying, I said you were going to destroy this place. So he goes outside the city in a really hot area and he starts kind of like tapping his foot, waiting for God to do what he's supposed to do, pouting. When's the fireworks going to start? Well, it's not going to start. These people repented. God wants to encourage that. But Jonah's up there. I'm doing my part. And he's there all day and nothing happens, of course. And God even is put, he's patient for Jonah. He causes this gourd to grow up, this plant to grow quickly, and it gives Jonah shelter. And Jonah's so glad for that. And then God prepares a cutworm or some kind of worm, and it cuts the plant, and it dies. And then Jonah's out there, and he's in the heat, and he's so mad. He's just raging at God. <laughs> I'm telling you, if I were God... I'd sure be angry at my runaway preacher. But you know what? God is patient with us, remember? He asks us questions. And in this exchange, at the end of the book of Jonah, we're going to get to the second question of our series. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you didn't put it there. But Nineveh's got more than 120,000 people. Actually, the Hebrew means babies. Not to mention all the animals. I love this question. I want to tell you, as pastor of a church, there isn't a day hardly that goes by that I don't think about this region of southern Kansas where people come all over to be part of New Spring. And God says, shouldn't I feel sorry for this great city? You're saying, Johnny, you don't feel sorry. There are 120,000 babies here. And you, you don't give a rip. <laughs> there are animals here. Shouldn't I feel sorry? You don't feel sorry. You're too busy with your self-righteousness and your insiderism. But God is saying, shouldn't I feel sorry? Listen, guys, what most people inside the church don't understand is God loves people who don't love him, and God cares about people who don't care about him, and God likes people who are nothing like him. Let's say that one more time. God loves people who don't love him. He cares about people who don't care about him, and he likes people who are nothing like him. I could keep you here the rest of the month showing you places in the Bible where that's true. The message today is for three people or three groups. I, at New Spring here, we have a lot of people that are searching, and they're not quite sure that they're ready yet to embrace even the idea of God, and, and I appreciate you coming, but I want to do something for a few moments. I don't do a whole lot. I want to talk to those of you who already have accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you're going to heaven. You pray to receive Christ, you understand the gospel, you know that Jesus died for your sins, and if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. Let me ask you a question. Is it enough for you, for you to go to heaven, and for your family to be okay? 
When I travel this country and I preach and I talk to people, one thing I hear over and over is some variation of this idea that, well, I'm saved and my family's saved. Do you not love anybody who needs Jesus? Don't you love somebody who needs Jesus? Don't you work with somebody who needs Jesus? Don't you live in the neighborhood of somebody who needs Jesus? Is it enough for you that you're going to heaven? You say, well, Mark, that's your job. God's called you to be a preacher. Do you know why God left you here after you accepted Jesus? Sure. To get a big house, drive nice cars, take nice vacations, retire in some condo in Miami Beach. That's not why God left you here. Not in a million years. You want to know why God left you here? I don't need to tell you. I can just read it to you. One of my favorite verses about salvation says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. That's what happened to us. And all this is a gift from God. It doesn't have anything to do with our resume. Now, here we go. Verse 19. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. What does reconciliation mean? It means you bring two parties together. See, God and humans are separated. We saw that last week. So God has a message of reconciliation of bringing people together with God. And it's through Jesus, what he did on the cross for us. And so God didn't give that message to the angels. God gave that message to you and me. He sent you and me out with a message of reconciliation. And look at this. It says, now we are ambassadors. We're Christ ambassadors. And God is making his appeal through us. That's why you're here. You know, I was, my son was sharing with me a story about Mount climbing Mount Everest. You know, it was climbed for the first time, I think, in 1953, but the government in Nepal discouraged it until the 90s. They realized it was a tourist opportunity, and since then, thousands of people have climbed Mount Everest. But I remember there was a, an accountant, of all things, named David Sharp, 30, 34 years old. He was climbing to the summit. He was coming back down, and he ran out of oxygen. And he laid there and died. It said that 40 people walked past him on their way up. They paid too much to climb the mountain to help somebody who was dying. I think there are a lot of Christians who are on their way to heaven and they walk right past people who are dying every day. Something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. What are we going to do about that? I mean, I didn't say that to bring guilt. I said that to inspire us to do something. We're We're ambassadors. Hey, you have a sphere of influence. I don't have and vice versa. I mean, here's the thing. You, don't, you say, well, Mark, I don't know what to say. They may ask a question I know the answer to. Put her there, partner. I know that too. But God didn't send you out to answer everybody's questions. God just sent you out to give an invitation. God sends you out to build a bridge. Just build a bridge to somebody. You know how thousands of people have accepted Christ at New Spring? New Springers have gone out and just simply said, hey, you need to come to my church. They came. They got hooked on a series. They heard a message. And sometime during a service, they prayed to receive Jesus Christ. That's the story of thousands of people here. And we got two marvelous opportunities coming up that are just like right on the tee waiting for you to swing. And here's the first one. We have Judgment House coming up. It's a series drama. It's a great opportunity. Invite somebody to be at Judgment House. November 5th and 6th, mark it on your calendar. It's going to be the weekend of all weekends. We have a wonderful story that happened right here at New Spring. Actually, we're at, in challenging all New Springers to invite someone to be with you in these services because you're going to hear a story. Please bring, bring plenty of Kleenexes. 
I mean, imagine you, you had a family member brutally tortured and murdered and dumped out along the side of the road. You would ask, how can God bring anything good out of that? Imagine, on the other hand, that you were actually part of that crime, and you're in jail, and you're awaiting trial and sentencing, and you're saying, how can anything good come out of that? You're going to see how God brought these two special individuals together, and there is a story of huge redemption. Our theme that day is going to be God can redeem any situation. If you have a friend that you love who you're not sure they're quite connected with God, bring them here. You will never forget the weekend of November 5th and 6th. And all you have to do is invite someone. Secondly, there's a message for New Spring Church. You know, I am passionate that we never become a church of insiders. And there's always the challenge of drift toward insiderism. God made us a very different church. We, if you know our history, and you may not know all of it, but in, beginning in uh, 2004, we went through four years of just deep pain as we were transitioning to become New Spring. It was almost like a birth experience. And although I've been pastor here for almost 32 years, I have to admit, I had allowed something, even though our hearts were in the right place, I think I had allowed a drift toward that insiderism. Actually, maybe we were in that and we were drifting out. But in 2004, something happened inside of me, and our staff picked it up, and we said, we will pay any price to build bridges to people who are spiritually unresolved. And that began what eventually became New Spring. But for four years, we went through trauma because I think we were probably averaging 1,200 in attendance, and I bet you seven, 800 people walked away over those four years, some of them for various other reasons. But in large part, there were many people that just couldn't see the church being about people on the outside. And the first year was very painful. I don't ever want to see 2004 again. 2005 was a difficult year, but I think the most painful thing for me was in 2006. Because by the time we got to 2006, we had made some very large strides toward reaching out in this room, in our student ministry, but in kids' ministry, it was still not being effective. We just had a handful of kids. And I remember thinking, I will do anything it takes because kids are the most important audience we have. See, here's the thing. If a church doesn't have a whole lot of kids, its future is not going to last very much longer. Its impact isn't going to last much longer. And so for us at New Spring, the most important audience is kids, which I'm so excited that on almost any given weekend, we have nearly 2,000 kids between birth and junior high. Yeah. I love watching the kids go into junior high. Can I go just a little bit into overtime today? I love going back to junior high and watching the kids check in and watching these junior hires who come through the pipeline. They don't even know you're not supposed to love church. They're radical because they grew up in New Spring. But we weren't there yet. And I remember saying, I'll do anything to start reaching kids. And so with the help of Dan and Debbie Kubish, who now pastor that part of our church, we begin to sit down and scope out and, and sketch out what it would look like to have a great kids ministry that really would make a difference and build bridges. And I remember pretty much on, on their advice, and as we begin to think about this and pray about this, we, we begin to think about something. We had five kids ministries, although they were well-intentioned and led by sweet people, they weren't really being effective, reaching people on the outside, they were all vying for the same body of volunteers. And we said, what if we scrapped those five things and we did one thing extraordinarily well and call it Kids World? Well, that meant as kids ministry was going to grow, we were going to have to take the limited space here that we had and turn all adult space into kids space. Well, if we turn all adult space into kids space, that means we're going to no longer have Sunday school. We're going to have to channel that over into small groups. 
And then we had a Sunday night service that only about a fifth of our church attended, but it was pretty much an insider service. And we said, we really need to start a Saturday night service. So I can't do both Saturday night and Sunday night. We're going to scrap Sunday night and start a Saturday night service. So in one weekend, I think it was September 6, 2006, a little over 10 years ago, we stopped all our kids' ministry, started Kids World, stopped our Sunday night service, started a Saturday night service. I don't know what, I mean, it was just a time of extreme change. Which, by the way, if you've been at New Spring very long, you know the only constant around here is change. The only problem was I had to give all that information out in April. And nothing was going to happen until September. And during that time, it was, of all those four years of difficulty, that was for me the most difficult time. Honestly, I will tell you, during that season, I was just wondering, is this ever going to end? I think our church was wondering, is it ever going to end? They, some of the people were probably wondering, has Mark lost his mind? And that they, I might have, actually, but I just uh, I was trying to explain it. And in those months in between, knowing what was going to be no longer part of our ministry and not yet feeling and sensing what was going to be part of the ministry, things got bad. I had promised Mary Alice that I would take three straight weekends off and just spend them with her and focus on her. And in 2004, because of the hardness of that year, I didn't do it. I didn't do it it again in 2005. And I said, somehow during this summer of 2006, I'm going to find a way to take three weekends off. And I did. I didn't even call home until the last week. I remember standing in the parking lot of a mall in Grapevine, Texas, and I called our executive pastor and I said, how are we doing? He said, well, since you left, you got to realize we're only running about 1,000 or 1,100 at that time. He said, since you've left, we're down 100 a week and we're down $10,000 in offerings. And I got scared. I really got scared. That was the only time I think during the four years that I was just really scared that we might not make it. And I kept thinking, how do I explain? I'm a communicator. How do I explain what it is that we're becoming. During those days, I used to wear suits seven days a week. And that's expensive. And I'm not the richest guy in the world, so I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I knew that dealers had an outlet store down there, and a lot of times they'd have expensive suits, seven, eight, nine dollars $900,000 suits they'd mark down. So I would buy my clothes down there, and I'd have them altered up here in Wichita. And so while I was there, I happened to buy the suit that I have on. I only paid a couple hundred dollars for it, but it's a $1,000 suit. And so when I got home, I took it to the tailor shop that had done my tailoring for a long time. The lady there did a phenomenal job. Her name was still on the sign, but when I walked in, there were two women I didn't recognize. Do you ever, like, leave something important with somebody, and you're like, I don't know if I should have done that? Like your car? Hopefully not your kids, but I mean. <laughs> Listen, when, when she came out to mark my suit, I just needed the sleeves, the cuffs taken up maybe a half inch, and the inseam's done. When, when, when I came, I, I, she, she marked it with pins. And, I mean, there was like a pin up here. I thought, what's that for? And then she marked the, the legs up, and they were all kind of crumpled. And, and I thought, man, I sold clothes when I was in college. I marked a lot of suits, but I never saw anybody mark a suit like that. But I thought, maybe there's some kind of new calculus. And I was nervous about leaving the suit there. I mean, I, it only cost me $200, but a $1,000 suit. And drove away. She said, come back in 10 days. So when I came back in 10 days, she said, oh, we're not quite finished with it yet. Maybe 15 minutes. So 15 minutes go by, then 30 minutes. My son, Stephen, who's 12, was he with me at the time? And then 45 minutes, an hour. And I said, how's it going back there? And they said, oh, we're fine. It's going to be just a few more moments. And I could swear I heard one of the women say, well, I've read in a book that it's supposed to be done like this. 
See, I'd find out later there were a couple of ladies that wanted to have a tailoring shop, and they bought a store from the lady that had done my tailoring, kept her name on the sign. That's what happened. And so two hours went by, and I said, would you just bring it out let me see it? And when I saw it, I wanted to throw up because this arm was like all mangled up like this, and this cuff was hanging down, and this one leg was two inches longer than the other leg. See, when I was in high school years ago, if a football player got in real trouble, they made him take home ec. And it looked like one of those football players had done it. I mean, and I looked at that and I thought, this is absolutely ruined. This is a $1,000 suit, totally ruined, junk, trash. So when I got into I said, just let me have it. So I got into my car, and I didn't want to freak Stephen out, so I didn't yell real loud. But I said, I can't believe what they did to this style. I mean, it can't imagine. They have a sign outside that says they tailor. How could they abuse an expensive garment like this? So I got home, and then when Mary Alice was there, I just really said, I don't, I mean, I just kind of came unglued. I said, I cannot believe what they did to the suit. I said, it's just garbage. Just throw it in the trash. And Mary Alice, with the wisdom that she always has, says, well, Mark, why don't you just take it to a tailor? I said, are you kidding? They couldn't do anything with this mess. And, and so I said, just garbage. But, you know, I couldn't bring myself to throw it away, so I went and hung it in the closet. And every day when I saw it, I just lost it again. <laughs> and one morning at breakfast, after losing it for about the eighth or ninth time, Mary Alice said, Mark, listen, Dillard's has to have somebody they use as a tailor who wants you to take it there. And I said, let me explain to you why I would never take this garment into a tailor shop. Because they're going to look at me and ask me, how did you let such a fine garment get in that kind of shape? And I don't know what to tell them. I don't know how to explain it. And I would be so embarrassed that I let this happen to this suit. And I said, because of that, I'm not going to go into a tailor shop. Couldn't fix it anyway. But Mary Alice is quietly, lovingly, persistent, and wise. And after a few days of that, I gave in, and I got up my courage, and I took it to a tailor shop on Rock Road, which, by the way, since that time, this shop has done all my tailoring. But you know what? Here's the thing. I'm not a great communicator, but I've had a little experience with communication. But that day, my communication was pathetic. Because as the gentleman who owns the shop saw me walk in with that mangled mess, I tried to explain all the things from that scenario, and they kind of all tumbled out at one time, and it was embarrassing the way I did it. I was saying, you know, I bought this suit. I bought it in Texas, and, and I got a good bargain on it, and I took it to this shop, but it wasn't the same lady who had the shop. It was some other lady, and they didn't know anything about tailoring, and they were kind of crazy, and they messed it all up, and I don't know how it happened. I shouldn't have let it happen. I should have taken it somewhere else, but I did, and I don't think anything can be done with it, but I'm just brought in here, and I'm embarrassed to bring it in here, and I'm kind of, I don't know there's nothing you can, no, Sonny just put up his hand like this. And he said, sir. Bring it to us. It's what we do. I had my illustration for how I need to talk to the church. I came in the next Sunday and I said, I wore the suit. As you can see, they knew what to do. I know it's hopelessly out of style. I just can't throw it away now. <laughs> and I said, for those of you who are wondering what we're trying to do here at this church, I want you to understand that people are going to come in their doors and they're going to say things like, well, if I went to church, the ceiling would fall in on me. And they're going to come in here with their lives and the hymns all hung out and mangled up and one leg shorter from the other. They're going to come in with lives that are in all kinds of trouble. And they're going to be afraid that somebody in a church, especially if they've ever been in traditional religion, somebody in a church is going to look at them and say, how did you let your life get in that kind of mess? Because that's what happens in so many churches. 
And I said, we want to open our doors to people whose lives, because it's okay, it's safe to not be okay here. Jesus will take you as you are. He won't leave you as he found you. And I said, when people come in and they start trying to tell us how their lives got all mangled up, I want us to be the kind of church that says, bring it to us. It's what we do. It's what we do. So if you're shopping for a church and you've landed at New Spring and you're looking for a church of insiders, I love you enough to tell you we're not your church, but you won't have any trouble finding one. They're a dime a dozen. But if you're looking for a church where the people on the inside are about people on the inside and we're all about building bridges and you're in the right place. Finally today, I want to talk to a third person and that's a person who might be here today. And although you look perfectly fine to us, your life is sort of like the suit that I just described. And you can wonder, how does God feel about me? You keep hearing that God is a holy God, and he is. And you can feel like God hates you. He doesn't. The same God who said, shouldn't I feel sorry about Nineveh? He loves you. He feels compassion towards you. He put his son on a cross so that you could come to him without any resume. Come to him just as you are. With the sleeve hanging out and the other sleeve mangled and one leg shorter than the other and feeling like your life is ruined and nothing can ever come out of it, come to God. Come to Jesus. He's already paid the price for you. You say, well, how do I get in there? Hey, it's a gift. Listen, if I had in my hand eternal life and forgiveness, if I truly did today, and I said, you know what? Anyone here who wants to be forgiven of all your sin and be sure you're going to heaven, you need to come up here right now and receive it out of my hand. I know many of you well enough to know that if you really knew I could do it and you knew I was sincere about the offer, you wouldn't hesitate to get out of your seat and walk all the way up here. But I can't. I can't even do that for myself. But Jesus can. And he holds out a nail-scarred hand to you. And he puts a deal on the table. And his deal is this. You come just as you are. And his love is great for you. The blood that came out of his body was a currency that can pay for any sin you ever have done or ever will done. It will do. And he holds out his hand to you and says, come now, come now. Why would anybody not do that? Why would anybody turn away? I mean, he hasn't, he hasn't come to you with harshness. He's come to you with love. He's come to you saying, I love you. You come. He's not asking you to join a church or give money. He's not asking you to even be perfect. Lord knows I can't be perfect for 30 seconds. He's asking you to come. Is there anybody here who wants that? tell you what I'll do. I'll guide you in a prayer. These aren't magic words. The important thing is what you feel. But I'll pray it slowly so you can decide if you want to say this to God. You ready? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me. I can't fix myself. I've tried. But I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe he rose from the grave. I want him as my savior and my king. Thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, that happened so quick you could say, Mark, I have no idea what happened to me. I want to give you something. I want to give you a gift. Actually, there's a gift bag waiting for you right now. It's got a beautiful Bible in it and some materials that will help you take your first steps. All you need to do is take the Talk to Us card, fill it out, check the box that says, I pray to receive Christ. Take the Talk to Us card back to guest services. There's one right outside the North Auditorium as well. 
And all you got to do is go back and say, I prayed with Mark. I promise you they won't hassle you, stalk you, ask for your routing number. They just want to give you this, okay? Thanks for being here. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.